Hello, welcome to the Physio Matters podcast, this month in association with exerciseprescriber.com, and this is session 55. Hello, welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. My name is Jack March. Unfortunately, this month we've been having some technical issues, which means Jack Chew is unable to record the intro and outro as he normally would because he's attending a wedding. So you're stuck with me for this short period, but don't worry, his dulcet tones are all over the interview, so we'll get straight onto that. This month I'm going to take the opportunity to tell you a little bit about our Reforming MSK Practice Conference, which is coming up in October, the 5th and the 6th, with a little party in between. Uh, you can sign up already at reform.physio forward slash conference. Go there, sign up for your ticket, sign up for the party, away you go. We've got some brilliant CPD. We've just released on Twitter the day one conference program, and I'm just going to run you very briefly through that before we get to the podcast. So we are running things slightly differently. We're going to have a keynote um, lecture uh, lasting roughly 30 minutes which is going to be followed by a panel discussion. So, for example, the first keynote session is on reforming our relationship with exercise, run by Eric Mira, who is our guest, coincidentally, on this podcast. He will then join Anne Gates and Brad Neal, where they will be grilled on a panel discussion. Then we'll be opening it up to the floor for questions from the audience. The following uh, keynote will come then from Joletta Bolton, talking about reforming patient engagement. She will then discuss... These, these things further with Pete Moore and Adrian McGregor. We're going to break for lunch with some uh, discussions and breakout sessions, networking opportunities to discuss and go and do different things while we uh, munch down on our sustenance to keep us going for the afternoon. Then we've got a brilliant session uh, we've entitled The Agitation Session by Roy Lilly um, before we go into our breakout workshops. So we've got three of those um, run by Juice Van Wieten, uh, Paula Deacon and Brad Neal, um, which you can see on Twitter. Then we're going to go into the day one debate after a break. We're going to talk all about reforming orthopaedic triage. We've got an orthopaedic surgeon, an MSK physician, some other healthcare professionals on that, where we're going to have a nice debate where we then open it again up to the floor. We're going to make everything super interactive and hopefully it's going to be a much different conference to the things that you're used to. So like I say, go over to the web link, sign yourself up before all the tickets go. And we anticipate that these are going to sell out very, very quickly. And you can be attending that conference uh, and getting some of the best CPD that we can we can come up with. So on to today's podcast. So we are, as I mentioned before, very lucky to have been joined by Eric Mira for this podcast, talking all things hips. So we're talking about younger hips, um, mostly to do with femoral acetabular impingement or its incarnations. You'll probably know Eric from his own podcasts that he runs, uh, that are competitors, you might say, from across the pond. Um, and hopefully we don't step on his toes too much and steal too many of his listeners. Wink, wink. Eric doesn't really need his own introductions, and this podcast is full, jam-packed of clinical information, um, really applicable straight away into clinic. You really won't need to digest too much of this. It's so well delivered by Eric, brilliant questions by Jack, and I certainly learned a heck of a lot from it. So I will see you on the other side for a little bit of a debrief, and hopefully you enjoy. See you on the other side. Okay, so I'm delighted to be here today 
with a fellow podcaster, uh, which is a bit bizarre. So he's, we're going we're gonna to get confused as to who's interviewing who, I think, at some point in this. So uh, forgive me if that happens. But I'm here with Eric Mira, and today we're going to talk about hip pathology, young hip pathology, femoral acetabular impingement, and as to whether or not we're going to stick with that term or not. Um, but before I but completely butcher his introduction, um, some of you, I'm sure, will be aware of him and his work and his podcast, which is uh, our inferior American cousin is, is how it's often known in the UK as PT podcast. Um, but yeah, Eric, as well as me just insulting you straight out the gates, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first, first, Jack, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, my name is Eric Mara and, and yes, I'm uh, from the United States. Um, I, I do have the podcast network PT podcast, uh, which has a, a number of different shows on it. Uh, I've been doing that since, uh, I think we launched it late 2011 um, otherwise I am a, uh, clinic director of a, a private practice clinic that I own in the United States. And I am also a consultant with the university of Portland's, um, athletic department, um, been practicing for about 20 years or so. I think that about sums it up. Yeah. I know. And, and, and lecturing both nationally and internationally, but I often see, Whilst I've heard you talk about various different things and write about various different things on your blog and elsewhere, you do tend to seem to be talking lower limb more than upper. Is that a fair enough assessment? Yeah, mostly and most of what I teach is on on hip and knee. My my background is actually um well, a little over ten years ago, I started the the hip special interest group here in the United States uh, for for physical therapists within um, the the sports physical therapy section. It's just the way that our our organizations are are organized. Um, so started that mostly because there just was a wasn't enough information on young adult hip for those of us that are working in it. And so after doing my own bit of research, I just wanted there to be some sort of a clearinghouse. And so I kind of really got into the, into collecting that information and then distilling that information through uh, a special interest group, which uh, Mike Raymond actually runs that group now uh, here in the United States. Um, but now my focus is probably more on, on knee pathology in particular or, or knee pain, knee injuries. Um, I do a lot with ACL reconstruction as well, but uh, obviously uh, pretty extensive background in hip. Cool. No, that's great. So let's let's jump straight into it. I did mention it in the intro there about the fact that it's uh, even a contentious term as I say it. I've I've supported a movement away from the term impingement, particularly at the shoulder. Uh, are there any problems with this similarly named and increasingly popular diagnosis at the hip? And what's your sort of take on the term before we even get going? Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those that uh, the consensus statement that came out uh, in, in British Journal of Sports Medicine back in, uh, in 2016, the Warwick Agreement, uh, they, they changed the name, but only very slightly, from femoral acetabular impingement to femoral acetabular impingement syndrome, which, which I do a, a appreciate adding the word syndrome in there. Um, the problem... The, kind of, you know, as you're noting with the shoulder, the problem with the word, the, the term impingement is it has kind of a scary, you know, sound to it. Uh, but the reality is impingement is normal in shoulders. I mean, you're always impinging uh, by that definition. And it's similar in the hip. It's just where you're basically just in range and where that occurs. So, you know, really, this is what it comes down to is, um, you know, you can throw terms at patients. You just have to make sure you describe what they mean and explain how normal or abnormal they are. 
uh, not just you know scare the crap out of them and run, run them away. Our job is to, to define what things are, and I think that's that's where things can fall apart. And so, what are we getting at then? If we if we try to um, insult the intelligence of our listenership uh, early doors in this podcast and think that they've no, they're not aware of this, so what are we getting at when we're talking about femoral acetabular impingement with or without the syndrome? What are we what we're referring to? So for more acetabular impingement, you know, it's, it's exactly as, as, as the, the, the phrase describes, it's the femur and the acetabulum uh, coming into contact, and there are things that can become impinged between those. Now, of course, you know, as we talked about in the shoulder, you know, when you, when you raise your arm up, your, your humeral head and your acromion, you know, generally make contact or at least squeeze structures in between them or impinge. Uh, you know, you have a rotator cuff, you have a bursa, that kind of thing. So in, in the hip... You know, it can be the labrum. There's some other structures in there, but typically they're talking about the labrum uh, in particular. Um, the the easiest way to think of it is with, um, for example, the pincer style of impingement. It's where the acetabulum is. You know, the easiest way to describe it is it, it's it's rotated in a way that it's kind of kind of uh, rotating over the top of the of the femur. Uh, you know, just in its natural resting state, it happens to be in that position. And so when a person tries to flex their hip, the femur is going to bang into the neck of the femur is going to bang into the, the acetabular rim earlier than would normally. Uh, and I use normal in quotes uh, on someone. Now, we've actually come to find out, and I think most people would agree at this point, that an isolated pincer type impingement, meaning the acetabulum, has that that orientation well it's probably a very normal finding that's that's you know rarely an issue in isolation the cam impingement which is the one that actually is what most people are talking about um i actually think impingement's probably not the best term for it because um i'm trying not to get too far into it but, but, but basically a, a cam is where the the kind of ball-shaped head of the femur is more egg-shaped so when it tries to turn inside of a you know more spherical acetabulum, it creates a spreading type force inside that joint. So it ends up pushing um, on the on the joint wall, which can create some shear force, which can have an effect on the articular cartilage, or push the labrum off of its root. So it's not so much that it you know quote unquote impinges as much as it just kind of gets shoved off the root. That seems to be more of a more of a specific, uh, problematic uh, type injury, which I will also debate whether that's truly problematic and how abnormal versus normal that is. But that that is kind of the mechanism that's going on there. So we're straight away talking about morphological changes, or well, morphological the morphological differences. Um, mm -hmm. Are these are these things at the hip natural physiological responses to load and if so, how can we classify them with regards to, you, you're talking about abnormal, normal, adaptive, maladaptive. There's both, for me, the, the actual, the shapes, what determines the shape, and also then what determines whether or not those things become symptomatic. So we've got two fairly broad questions there. Take it where you wish. Yeah, so, um, you know, it's a good point. First off, you know, we're talking morphology, not pathology. I'm always cl very clear on that when I'm describing CAM in particular. Is it, This is just, there are differences here. And and so, uh, you know, nobody's overall head is a okay? Then it would be free-floating. It has to, at some point, attach to a neck. 
how big, how thick that neck is, specifically in certain areas, is what makes something kind of a, a more of a cam. And there's there's a measure they use. It's called an alpha angle. It doesn't really matter, you know, the specifics of the alpha angle uh, as far as how it's measured. But it's interesting that people give it a cutoff of say like 55 degrees. Okay, so what if you have 56 degrees? Do you have a problem? And then the person with 54 degrees doesn't have a problem. It's not a dichotomous type thing. It's a, a it's a spectrum. And of course, with any spectrum of presentation, you always have, you know, a bell curve of presentation. So, you know, there probably there's there are people that you know would have a 60 degree alpha angle that would be perfectly fine. There's somebody who could have a 50 degree alpha angle and they have a problem. Uh, the, the point being is it's always individual uh, to the patient. As far as the the load question, that that's um, you know how these things form. Um, we do know that they form uh, basically at the um, at the physeal line on the anterior femoral neck. Uh, it seems to be they seem to form you know in males uh, more common in males than in females, but it seems to happen around the age of 12 years old or so, so somewhere around puberty. Uh, but we do have the problem of there are a lot of athletes who don't develop it, who had the same exposure to load, but they don't seem to get it. Um, we have people in the general population with very little exposure to load that they have it as well. So we do think genetics definitely play a role here. You probably have to have a genetic predisposition, and then you have to have the loads applied to it. One of the problems we have, you know, there, there's a lot of um, you know speculation as to whether or not a sport like uh, like uh, soccer or, or football. Um, they, they definitely has a high prevalence of cams. Um, but the problem is, is that, uh, people with cams also have a high prevalence of having basic retroversion of their hips, which gives them a natural toe out position, which may be an advantage for the playing the game of soccer. Um, so then you end up with selection bias issues, all these things. So, you know, it all drops into the the bucket of you know what is normal, what is abnormal, and that's probably one of the the hardest. Yeah, and I suspect that you'll you'll zoom in a little bit on that and and therefore make it in, as individualized as as possible. But whilst I know that that work is messy and that literature is is hard to tease out the detail, I imagine you have a sort of hunch take on whether or not you feel these things. Um, that these morphological changes and propensity to develop pathology, do you feel that, that that there are a link? There is a link to training or overtraining of adolescents. I my personal feeling is I don't think it's. Um, I I think it's a hard thing to say that. And on that same note, when I look at all the potential benefits of involving an adolescent in sports. Um, I think the, the potential benefits way out risks, uh, outweigh the risks specifically regarding, regarding hip pain. Yeah. Okay. No, that's a, that's fair, fair point. Now we've talked about a few of them, but what are the factors at play that result then in a symptomatic FAI or any hip related groin pain? So we've talked about morphology. Let's, let's point a little bit more at biomechanics, physiology, those sorts of variables, because we're talking about predisposition, but then what is it that then makes this a pathological issue? So uh, let's say somebody has a really big cam 
and they also have some retroversion of their acetabulum. So the acetabulum, instead of pointing slightly forward, you know, it points to the side. Or most people understand that to the side and slightly forward. Instead of being to the side and slightly forward, let's say it's straight to the side. So the anterior wall is kind of closing off a little bit. So you got that, and you have a large cam. So when you go to flex your hip in a quote normal line of movement, say you know, let's say you're doing squat down, you're taking that that cam, which is like a bump on the neck and you're shoving it into the acetabulum in a position that actually a quote unquote normal hip wouldn't be entering in, in that spot because you know, they're in an unnatural position for them. And again, that's the thing is it's specific for them. And so they end up, you know, putting a lot of sheer uh, stress into the joint. What the, the research has shown is that the thing that's most likely the, the pain generator in these situations, and that's what gives them that sharp, uh, kind of groin pain that's associated with it. And so, you know, the, the simple reality of it, it really comes back to similar to like the, the shoulder issues people have. You, you poke at something, it gets hot and irritable. So now when you poke on it, it hurts. Right. You're poking on an irritated spot. That's really the long and the short of it. So we're talking morphology, we're talking biomechanics. We're then talking about how that then might break down someone's physiological response to um, especially subchondral bone um, lesion of a sorts or a reaction, bony stress reaction of a sorts. Obviously, yeah. that needs to, to some degree, whilst again oversimplifying the complexity of a pain experience, but it then it needs to at least journey through the nervous system or, or pain as, a, as an emergent property of a human. So, are you, is your take that there is predispositions in those directions too? Because there's some people that seem to be asymptomatic that would if under scan conditions especially when we then developed the third tesla mris we saw a huge spike mm -hmm. in what was being reported as pathology in um in, in not necessarily asymptomatic but just people that happen to have some growing pain were then being misattributed sometimes to hip issues so just talk in that direction if you can as to what other variables are in play that then need to make that symptomatic to an individual yeah i like to cite uh, karen briggs paper from I want to say 2012 now, where they just took a bunch of people that were around the age of 38 years old, threw them in a Tesla 3 MRI, and fired off images. People had no symptoms whatsoever, and about, I think it was 69% of them had evidence of labral pathology, labral tears. So, you know... <laughs> They're kind of everywhere, uh, you know, kind of like meniscus injuries or anything else. And so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, again, I, I, I talked about, you know, I, I focus a lot more on kind of knee pathology now. Most of the papers I've published recently have been on that, specifically like patellofemoral pain. Um, patellofemoral pain, for example, has very high correlations with depression and anxiety. And so um, when we think of diagnoses that have, typical comorbidities of depression and anxiety that create confounding factors, low back pain is what most people jump to pretty quickly as the, the kind of gold standard for that. And so I, I sometimes call patellofemoral pain the low back pain of the knee, I, you know, shoulder impingement syndrome, whatever you want to call it, the, the shoulder, the low back pain of the shoulder. And I think femoral impingement can be like low back pain of the hip. And so being that, you know, and, and whenever I teach a course, you know, specifically talking about like physiotherapists, how many of you have had anterior knee pain in your life? And of course, like the bulk of the audience raises their hand. How many of you actually saw somebody about it? And most of them put their hand down. It's like, so when the patient is sitting in front of you, you could say their problem 
the reason they're presenting to you today is because they have anterior knee pain. Or you could say the reason they're pre presenting to you today is because they can't seem to get past this anterior knee pain from a mental perspective. And so how much of this is just showing somebody that this is not dangerous, you're not doing damage, you know, away you go. Uh, and that's actually what the quote unquote disease that you're dealing with is not so much the physical thing that they're dealing with, but their almost their, uh, their education level, their emotional stance, uh, what are all these other factors that can be at play? So I definitely think that this is uh, a huge issue, uh, specifically with hip pain, um, from a femoris tabular impingement perspective. And before we, I mean, I don't want to get stuck in the weeds with, uh, patellofemoral, uh, pain, but um, to be clear, we know that the sort of patellofemoral pain literature suggests that this isn't a self-resolving condition. You're not suggesting that they just happen to be sat in front of you, and if left alone, they'd they'd, they'd sort of get over it in time. Nope. Um, you're no, they probably just meaning, won't. You're just meaning that there's a complex. Sometimes a so complex set of social circumstances that make them bring it to your attention, and you need to be aware of of those things, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, to give kind of an example there. So somebody, somebody's knee hurts and they go, Oh, oh man, I, I wonder what I'm doing to my knee. Oh, this is, this is really troublesome. And so they, um, uh, they, they rest it for a bit. It stops hurting them. And then as they go back to run again, their nervous system is like double and triple checking the knee to say, is it okay? Do you feel anything? Are you sure you don't feel anything? And you can almost create, you know, uh, you, you basically, um, you know, to use a podcasting term, you put the gain a little too high in the microphone. So now all of a sudden they're, they're much more susceptible to feel little sensations and interpret them as pain, uh, once they've kind of set that thing in motion. And so it doesn't resolve itself because they end up going down a spiral of, um, you know, reinforcing their, their, their pain behavior. And then also from a tissue perspective, they're not putting load into that area anymore. So the area can become deconditioned and then hypersensitized as well. Uh, and so that's where I feel, you know, you know, intervention should be focused on with that. And so the intervention can be useful, but a lot of times it's just a matter of, cause I, I've had patients come in and, and they're like, yeah, I, you know, I've been told not to ignore pain. And so I want to make sure that this gets addressed. And when you say, no, actually there's no damage really happening. If you can tolerate your activities, you're fine to just do what, what, what feels right to you. You do need to make the area stronger and, and be able to tolerate loads, um, but there's a lot of ways that you can get about that. And if you feel like you've got some tools on your own, knock yourself out. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that makes sense. Now, we're, uh, whilst I don't necessarily like this as a, as a generalized line of argument, I think it's it's interesting sort of uh, manifestation of physio reasoning where people will, when they're thinking about the emotional aspects and the social aspects, then they'll they'll sometimes then choose to think that okay that would mean someone might be holding tension through their shoulders which might predispose them therefore biomechanically because of different tonal changes of their you know periscapular musculature similarly they might be tense through their you know they're getting tension through their groin and therefore they've got suboptimal biomechanics so people immediately try to then reattribute it to biomechanical variables and similarly, low, low back pain, I mean, that's, that's the area in which has been obviously researched to, to high heaven, people assuming that people holding themselves too tense, and that's the direct cause of symptoms. But just to speak towards that a little bit, is there, is there any evidence to suggest that whilst 
the more for the specific morphology might not necessarily be the causal link um, is there anything to suggest that that people have a predisposition because of the way in which their their sort of hip muscle imbalance is often the term used or sort of a a, a, a discrepancy between the, the length or strength of specifics especially because there's the the rotator cuff of the hip and the re internal rotators and people have their geeky anatomical answers for these issues so uh, just speak at that for a little bit uh, I mean the short answer is no but you probably want me to elaborate <laughs> <laughs> you don't maybe not need to I like how much shorter your answer was than my question though <laughs> yeah uh, I mean it, it, yeah it's pretty much no and and so um the problem we have, and I think this is, you know, I can make a generalization to the profession as a whole, is we'll we'll come up with these these ideas, and then we'll implement a, a treatment approach to have an effect on it. So let's say, um, oh, I think your muscles are really tight over here, uh, so I'm going to do some sort of like a massage technique to to release those muscles and to get them to relax, and then that's going to, you know, you know, make you make things drop into line a little better and you'll have better alignment. Well, first off, you can't really assess the alignment anyway, even if you, you'd have to be firing off a bunch of x-rays and, and all that. But, um, what, what they forget is that, you know, when you do some sort of an intervention, there's a lot of other effects that can be at play. And that's why I always encourage people to do is, you know, you, you can even, you know, we can go back and forth all day as to whether or not I, I think somebody should even do a certain intervention at all. But what I would say to the average clinician out there is whatever you whatever you do, whatever you do to a patient, your brain's going to quickly go to an explanation as to what you think you just did. Challenge yourself to come up with alternative explanations of what may have been at play here. You don't even have to agree with them. You don't even have to 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 change your mind, just at least entertain the ideas. And so you know, one of those things I like to point out to, to patients, you know, cause they'll say, Oh, you know, I got to get, uh, uh, I've got to get my back muscles to relax. I'm so, I'm so tensed up and, and that's causing me all this pain. Uh, so I need the back muscles to get massaged. It's like, okay, look, the drug group of drugs called muscle relaxants, they don't go to your muscle and relax them. The muscle relaxant works by relaxing you. When you relax, everything kind of relaxes. So the point being is anything that makes you as an organism relax is probably going to have a pretty good effect on that general quote unquote tension you got going on there. And that's where, you know, what I'll tell patients is because um, they'll say, well, will massage helps. Like, yeah, I mean, you can go get a massage, but I think it should be a nice relaxing massage that you walk out of there feeling kind of loose and relaxed. It, it's not breaking anything up. It's not doing anything in particular. It's just relaxing. And this is where, you know, things like somebody will go get acupuncture or something like that. It, it, did it really realign your meridians and get your chi in order? Uh, I mean, I don't know. But what you did is laid, it, laid down on a table for 30 minutes and had somebody focus all their attention on you while you relaxed, you know, in a, in a kind of quiet environment with no distractions. You know, that potentially could be all that could be at play. Because we're saying that there's a front-end mistake, in a sense, or a front-end uh, assumption that's being made diagnostically as to a causal mm -hmm. link between a muscle tension, for example, we're talking about here. And then there's this sort of post-hoc justification of that intervention helped because it corrected for this fault. So in light of both of those things, you, you know, you've not really got the sufficient evidence or reasoning to justify that sort of behavior and therefore to be 
especially when some of these interventions are often uncomfortable, as you're mentioning. You know, it's like yeah. really, where's your, where's your, you, you surely crossing a few ethical lines rather than just even one. Yeah, and, and and so like from my perspective, like I don't provide any of those types of treatments. I I put them all in the same bucket of whatever makes you feel better. I don't care, but they all pretty much, you know, my explanation is that they probably all work with the same mechanism of just making the person feel more relaxed. Uh, you know, it could be desensitizing, all these other things, but it, it doesn't really address any of the underlying issues unless their issue is, um, you know, they have an anxiety disorder. So if somebody has an anxiety disorder and that's what's causing their problem, I mean, they can get all the massages on the face of the earth, you know, all day long. It's not going to fix their anxiety disorder. It's just going to be a coping strategy. Um, but the more that they believe that they need the massage to break up, you know, tight muscles to allow them to move normally, you know, then you create these weird dependence issues with somebody with an anxiety disorder. You know, I think it's just, you know, throwing gasoline on a fire and, you know, again, you don't, somebody goes to a psychologist with a, uh, or a psychiatrist with an anxiety disorder. I don't think they say, you know, go get a massage. <laughs> That's, that's not the treatment. Okay. That's not how you treat an anxiety disorder. You know, it's, you know, you could also just drink a bunch of alcohol and you know, you're going to feel better for the time being, but that's sure not the right way to treat it. Well, I don't want you, well, I'm going to cut you off there because uh, that should be the answer to everything. <laughs> okay. Maybe so, it would don't be. Want to, don't, don't want to upset, upset my go-to <laughs> strategies. Now we, we don't, I'm going to get back to treatment. Don't get me wrong, but I know how we got there. It was, it was obviously part of the reasoning process and the mistakes that get made within the profession yeah. that attempted to drag back to biomechanical variables, even when we're talking about the effect uh, affected. Um, but before we do, then let's let's just go back to the start in a sense. In that, what are the subjective clues? And, um, and once you're suspicious of, say, FAI, what else should we ascertain at that point? So when we're first starting the exam. So the first thing is that the patient's going to report that their primary pain is in the anterior hip. Um, so usually um, it can radiate down the, into the groin, but pretty much just right in front of the hip joint. They're going to point there, and and you know the some. Um, you know, I, I know um, uh, Tom Bird was the first one to describe the C sign, which is where you put your hand in the shape of a C and then grab your the side of your hip with your fingers digging into the front. And uh, Tom actually recently pointed out that Kay Jones, his medical assistant, was the one to actually coined that term. Um, but uh, that's that classic symptom presentation of that there. And then usually they're going to have pain with deep flexion, uh, internal rotation, and, and adduction uh, across. Um, and that's what you're looking for. And basically, you know, if you think about it, what you're doing is taking a cam and you're shoving it into the acetabulum. And so you're taking a bulging area and sh a bony bulging area and pushing it into a, a sensitized region. And that's what gives them that pain. Uh, the other thing is typically someone with a cam, there, there's some research that has shown that there's a very high correlation with um, almost like a... Uh, you can basically say if somebody has less than 20 degrees of internal rotation, they probably have a cam of some sort, uh, whether, you know, even if they have no symptoms at all, uh, they could just have a, you know, quote unquote normal cam. So that's another thing that you can look for as well. So they're, they're describing these classic subjective clues. And then what else are we looking to ascertain in the, in the subjective exam at that point when, let's say it is a, um, they're, they're describing these textbook signs. But then we're when you know we're going to go down the line of trying to understand. I imagine, let's say, uh, th that sort of loading profile and what they're getting up to. What what sort of stuff are we wanting to detail for that when you're assessing someone? 
Well, I mean, the, the work agreement did a really good job um, establishing the, the kind of evaluation process. They, they pointed out that the patient has to have a triad of, of, of things that they present with. So one being that they have to have the anterior hip pain. They have to have um, a positive fader uh, or, or a loss of internal rotation, meaning a, a lack of internal rotation. Uh, the fader being flexion, adduction, and internal rotation. When you when you stress them into that position, they have to have pain, and then they have to have uh, X-ray or some sort of imaging to show that they actually have a cam uh, in order for it for it to be um, diagnosed. And so, um, the other half of it is, you know, you have your hip mimickers, so things that would look like hip, and typically your athletic pubalgia would be one of those. Um, and your uh, psoas uh, tendinopathies would be the other one, the other of the, of the two main ones. And, you know, like a, the problem with like athletic pubalgia is that it correlates very well with cam type morphology, um, but they won't have symptoms when you go into a fader. Uh, and then similarly, uh, psoas tendinopathy shouldn't have symptoms when you go into fader, fader as well. Um, between those. Um, but typically in the eval that I'm going to do is I'm going to look to see, you know, how sensitive are they? So the fader is a very good tool for that. You put them into that position and you see, you know, do they jump off your table or are they just going to kind of go, yeah, that's the pain and uh, it's uncomfortable, but, you know, I can tolerate it, you know, there's different levels of that spectrum. And then, you know, I look at the I basically look at their list of things that they're trying to get back to and trying to do. And, you know, that's where I use my knowledge base to go, okay, well, I know these specific movements require you to go into those positions that cause you pain. So let's see if we can modify and go around that. And so what sporting and worldly aggravating factors are they describing? Is it often quite general or is it that they describe when I cut off this particular standing leg uh, to turn left? You know, how, how, what, what's it, what's sort of the, generalized sort of um, go-to? Well, interestingly, it's changed over the last 10 years. (laughs) And part of that has to do with uh, how quickly these patients are identified now. So that used to be that they weren't identified, they would kind of self-manage. And the ones that truly became problematic would have just really irritated joints. And so the, the typical complaint was they have pain when they get out of bed, by in or when they're getting out of their leg out of a car so anytime they do like a straight leg raise type move the engagement of the psoas pushes on that torn damaged area and creates that that kind of pain now what it typically is is they're going to have pain with deep squatting uh and this is typically more the athletic people you know so in their weight room doing deep squatting or anything that requires them to go into internal rotation while going into a squatting type move. We've definitely seen it with like golfers on their lead leg when they kind of twist in an internal rotation really, really hard. Um, sometimes, um, you know, sports that, that involve any sort of twisting towards the leg uh, uh, can create it. But usually it's it's squatting type movements is the bigger thing. Yeah, okay. So when we're thinking about the sort of descriptions of these symptoms and they're, they're changing over time because of how they've been picked up. And I think that's, that's really interesting to, to have, to have noted. And, and it's been a real sort of journey over time for various reasons with this pathology and it, it is ever changing. Do you, do the variables you're describing really influence your sort of not diagnostics, but actually when they're describing the symptoms over the end of a, of a soccer game 
Um, although I'm, I'm, I'm upset that I've just used the word soccer, but I'll go with it. I'm proud of you, Jack. Yeah, cheers. And um, um, there's, there's the, the, you know, the, accumulatively they're uncomfortable through that versus someone that's describing a sharp, intense pain off the back of a deep squat. Whilst diagnostically they, they come under the same umbrella as we're describing it, what 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 relevance is that to? Are you just putting them into a box, or are you teasing out the differences between that? And that's going to indicate sort of. Um, complement your reasoning process to trying to help them to resolution well that's actually that's a really good question because that is part of my thought process that uh and, and i teach this in courses is i always ask the patient when did you first start noticing your symptoms and so if they say i first start noticing them in the weight room during deep squats i had a coach that kept telling me i needed to get my toes straight ahead and go all the way heel to butt uh, on my squats and then, you know, my hip really started to bother me. And now it bothers me when I, when I play my sport, um, that person, actually, I, I, I have a much, um, I think they have a better prognosis for solving their problem conservatively, uh, as opposed to the person who says, um, I first noticed it in the middle of a game during my sport. It actually doesn't really bother me in the weight room because I make adjustments and I'm doing just fine. But it's when I get out there and do my sport that's giving me the biggest, the bigger problems. Um, and that gets more into my belief that it's very difficult to change the way somebody is is moving during their sport. Um, I'm not saying it's completely impossible, but I would say it's essentially impossible. Um, and so to me that, that creates a little bigger uh, of a problem, um, uh, for, for more of that kind of quick fix, so to speak. So you yeah, you're suggesting that someone's complex sporting biomechanics that they've assumed over time, especially in, let's say a, uh, an athlete in their mid to late twenties, you're, yeah. you're pessimistic as to how much we can influence those gross sort of sporting biomechanics, um, which, right. which makes you concerned that you've not got, a, you've got a, not got enough to symptom modify enough to tinker with then there. Right. And so, I mean, what I can, what I would try to do is in that case, let's say they, you know, let's say they're a, a footballer and they, they were striking a ball and they really, and right as they're striking, somebody came in and hit their leg and they really on their plant leg, they really internally rotated really far and they felt something in the front of their hip go. And, and now they've got this sharp hip pain in the front. Well, you know, I'm going to shut them down, try to avoid those activities that irritate it. I'm going to keep, put them in the weight room and try to keep them as strong as possible, maintain as much as I can in the meantime without aggravating anything. As it starts to calm down, keep them building them up and then start to slowly release them back to their activity and hope that it doesn't kind of flare back up at them. But if every time they go back specifically to their sport, it starts flaring up again, those are the ones I'm a little more nervous about. Um, cause if the hot spot kind of where it kind of calms down and then flares right back up again, every time they go back to something, even though I've, I've done everything else to, to maintain as much load tolerance as possible. Um, those are the ones I'm more concerned about. Cause yeah, I, I think a very complicated movement in sport, um, if, if it can be changed, it can't be changed quickly. And, and by quickly, I mean, within a year, it can't be changed, uh, in my opinion. And I mean, I could go on for hours about that whole concept and it gets into like dynamical systems theory and some of that type of uh and complex adaptive systems and all these things when we're actually talking about human movement but that's where um you know kind of more to your point you know if an elite athlete moved like the average person well they wouldn't be elite now would they 
So why are you trying to make an elite athlete move quote unquote normal? What makes them elite is probably the fact that they do something a little unique and it gives them a special advantage in their sports. The last thing I want to do is, especially when I'm dealing with very, very high level athletes, I, I am usually very wary to try to make any change to what they do. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a funny sort of scientific, well, if you call it scientific, because it's anti-scientific, but I mean, there's, a, there's an arrogance that comes from expertise or the perception of expertise that people want to be very specific. And therefore, I think personally, it sort of carries with it this, this swagger where they're presented with a elite athlete and they want to be presenting themselves as an elite therapist. And to do so is to describe a... Uh, an air of expertise that, that is something that's beyond the athlete's understanding or still maps onto their understanding and, and making attributing specific causes to specific movements or biomechanical variables or sort of slow motion al- analysis and, and whilst sometimes all of those things are, are essential some of the time uh, to do that and to rip someone's biomechanics to part to, to quote um Tim, uh, not Tim Westwood, very different character. Paul Westwood, who's been on this podcast, um, sure. and, uh, and obviously that maps onto people like Greg Lehman, Ben Cormack, who also been on the show. That, that he's just tearing people down um, in that direction in order to for, for what end? You know, really, who's that for? Is that for the therapist or for the patient? And it is a it is a concern. And, you, and you've you've certainly spoken really well in that direction. Like you said, we'd probably need more hours, wouldn't we, if we we're going to go down that that rabbit hole? So we're we're on to we're on to um, the, the the question that whenever we do a pathology specific shall we say podcast like this i always have to ask the question as to how special are the special tests in this region um because we've mentioned some of them and, and this is an area that if you call them special tests then you could make a case as, as mike ryman does that there are certain sort of patterns or clusters of things that can can be helpful but he also writes that um, in, 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 a, in a general sense that the special tests ain't that special so what's your sort of take on it what are your go-to things that you're looking for and what do you actively avoid these days and have moved past well yeah I, I joke about in the course I teach I used to do a two-day course on hip and now I can't get more than two-thirds of a day on hip it's just there's just not that much to there's not as much to talk about as we used to think. And so I used to have a list of like 15, 20 different special tests for the hip. And now it's pretty much, uh, all variations on the fader. And, and if you're going to learn one test, the fader is the one to learn. And so you just bring them up to 90 degrees of flexion. You push them over into the horizontal adduction, and then you pull the foot out, keep the knee in to create internal rotation. And it should, recreate their symptoms. Um, now that said that one test is very sensitive, not very specific. So in other words, if you do that test and it's positive, that doesn't really tell you very much. If you do the test and it's negative, you can be pretty sure this person does not have anything wrong with their hip joint. There's or the pain is not coming from their hip joint, uh, because it pretty much takes the hip and puts a ton of stress on the structures inside the hip. And so if the hip is irritable, it's going to hurt. The problem is, is it puts a ton of stress on structures in the hip that even a normal hip may feel some irritability to it. And so that's where, you know, it, they're really useful for ruling it out, but not really useful for, for actually diagnosing. And, and I'm kind of a stickler for, um, you know, again, that differential diagnostic process. You're always trying to rule out. You never try to rule in. You're just trying to show all the things that it isn't. And then once once you've ruled everything out that you can then see what's left. And if you only have one thing, then there's your diagnosis. But, um, but so that's why I, I do think they're very useful, specifically the fader, 
but not necessarily um, to rule anything in, just more to, to clear somebody out. But you're, you're not running an algorithm in your head then that's, that's then helping to, to, well, algorithm or flow chart in the sense that you're sort of um, then in a situation where you're, this is what this is and this is what we need to do next and therefore this will clarify. You're building it into a reasoning process and framework that's not necessarily algorithmic by the sound of things. No, and again, that algorithm is pretty much the, the work agreements algorithm of the three things they have to have. So pain in the front of the joint, uh, they have to have symptoms, <laughs> which interestingly, it's like, yeah, symptoms, they have to have them. You can't just come with an MRI with a labral tear and say, I have a labral tear, it needs to be fixed. You have to have symptoms. Uh, so yeah, the symptoms, uh, the, the findings on exam, um, and, uh, and then the findings on radiograph, but the, um, you know, in the clinic, you know what I'm saying? The reason I go to do the fader is I'm asking myself, I wonder if their hip is irritable. And then I do that and yeah, their hip is irritable or no, it's not, you know, I can't tell you how many times you, you do a fader and the patient goes, yeah, that's, that, that hurts. Um, yeah, but does it hurt in the same way that, uh, the pain that you're coming in here for? Oh no, no, no. It hurts in a different way. Okay. Well, that's probably something different. Um, but that's really the only reason to, to do that test. It is kind of that whole, you know, line of questioning of how long have you had your symptoms? Where, how did your symptoms start? Were they in the weight room? Were they on the field? You know, these types of questions, where are your symptoms? Uh, are you getting any mechanical type signs? Um, let's see if your hip is irritable, you know, again, how long you've been dealing with, you know, anything that's less than three months old, I probably want to kind of ride it out, see what it's going to do on its own. Um, you know, things have been going on for a year or so. I'm really starting to question why the body didn't just kind of figure this out. And, and, um, I'm probably going to be leaning more towards getting a radiograph just to give me a little more information. But, uh, so yeah, all of that weighs at all times. Sure. Now I'm going to take it. We want to take a deep dive into treatment options. Um, but it'd be too easy for us to walk through the sort of um, conservative loading-based variables that we will get to, but it'd be almost the, the low-hanging fruit for us. I think we'll get his teeth into it. So to make sure we don't end up squeezing them out of, of time, I just want to go back to one of the examples that you used about a, a person that's sort of developing, no matter when, how you reload them back into their sporting context, it's starting to get sore. I just want to talk about the physiology of that and therefore how that might indicate different treatment options where is it do you feel that that is potentially worsening their structural issue and their sort of anatomy and physiological changes at the at the hip because that's that's often the concern that people are having as to when to draw the line under when physios obviously hope you hope you'd be working alongside a a surgical team perhaps in an ideal world but it seldom happens so instead People are often worried that they are truly worsening someone's arthritic process, for want of a better term. Um, and so what's your, what's your take on what's going on there, how cautious we might need to be in those circumstances? Well, and when I, when I teach this, I'll show the process of how a cam causes articular damage, and it causes a delamination injury of the articular cartilage. And it looks nasty. I mean, it is big massive chondral flap that gets ripped open and it, it, it's you know keep you up at night if you look at it but that said what if you talk to the surgeons what they talk about is if they get in there and they see this chondral flap on the acetabular side which is typically what you'll see they don't get real worried about it they kind of they just breathe that away 
they, they shave the cam down so it stops poking on that. And that's all the surgery does. The surgery is a decompression procedure. You're having pain when this bone bony bump pushes against this thing here. So I'm going to shave the bump down so it doesn't push on that anymore to allow it to calm down because everything else we tried to calm it down isn't working. So we're going to physically remove the offending thing that's poking on that spot. Somebody can learn to tolerate that being poked through progressive you know, loading to that, but some people, it just doesn't work. And so they, they'll shave that down. Now, what they say is that's all stuff they can fix and they usually will see a pretty good prognosis. But if the chondral lesion is on the femoral side, which is rare, that's more an indication of this thing is heading down a bad direction and you're actually going towards osteoarthritis. And that's probably what you see as early signs of osteoarthritis. To me, that chondral lesion that forms on the acetabular side, because it for, seems to form so quickly and so easily, I start to feel like this might be something that we're kind of evolved to have. That's like our circuit breaker type thing that kind of gives and then once that chondral area kind of gets kind of torn away, it gives you a little more space in that joint. And then the pathology may not progress any further than that, for all we know. Um, research shows that people can live pretty long without any sort of real hip problems um, with pretty big cams. And, uh, you know, they, they talk about this alpha angle really needing to be up over 70 degrees, which is a massive alpha angle for there to be any, any real consistent problems. And so, you know, how much is this is just the body going through some adaptations, you let it calm back down and then it's perfectly fine. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, uh, you know, I think, okay. So again, you know, to your point of, of that patient that's has this process going on, it all comes down to what they can tolerate, what they can't tolerate. I mean, even somebody with full blown OA, you don't say stop your activities cause you're going to ruin your joint. You say, do what you can tolerate. Uh, it is what it is. Um, you know, if you're really kind of destroying that joint, it's hard to push through that kind of pain, you know, unless you're, you know, taking a bunch of painkillers at the same time. So I, I just don't think the body allows itself to get broken down quite like that. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think that might be a fun point of subtle disagreement unless I'm being pedantic because I think you, you I wonder if, I wonder if you perhaps, I mean, in that circumstance, it, it would be that you're suggesting that the pain is, is, is a particularly useful and accurate measure of um of damage there aren't you uh no more kind of saying it's it's again kind of like that sensitivity specificity thing so if you're feeling no pain i doubt that you're uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident to say you're not really having anything quote harmful going on on the flip side just because you feel pain doesn't mean it's a, it doesn't mean that damage is happening but i think in order for there to be anything significant to be worried about you have to have pain with it um, but just because you have pain doesn't mean that something significant and damaging is actually going on. And then again, you know, as we talked about before, you know, how somebody interprets that pain, how somebody's nervous system could be amplifying pain. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, there are definitely, you know, cases where people like don't feel pain in the horrible lives that they actually lead. But those people are very rare and typically not the person that we're dealing with. You know, yeah. uh, so it would be the real tales, and, tales of the distribution for us to be thinking about. Like the, the people yes. that come in that have got really advanced changes and have just developed a bit of stiffness or only come in when they can't tie their shoelaces. 
I mean, we, right. which unfortunately we do see, but yeah, we can't pretend that they're representative. They're, they're, they're an interesting example to use when we're talking about the complexities of pain and it, it not correlating, but we're also right. got to admit that they are on the, on the rarer side. But if, if, I, if I were to just talk about that, that what we often the, the term is used in the UK at least is this fraying process that occurs at the anterior labrum. Um, what I just want to talk about is that that justification, the, the description of what you've described as the pathology or the worsening of it, from a, especially from a CAM issue, is often the justification that people do to to treat asymptomatic hips that have been discovered to have this issue as a means of not of to stopping them developing pathology. What's your take on that as a prophylactic process of of, of surgery? Just I, I don't. Because because they, they they perceive that that is to stop an inevitable wrong that will occur down the road. I, I don't think there's any evidence for that. And honestly, I think that um, the, the hip joint, the reason we haven't been in the hip joint arthroscopically until relatively recently is because it's a very difficult joint to get into. And it's very easy to do harm when you go in there. Uh, it, it's very, very easy to do harm. And you're probably more likely to do more damage than you will fix there. And again, that you know, that kind of morphology, the idea of it being pathology, I think is, um, you know, dubious at best. And so, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend against that type of thing because, uh, you know, that there is some research looking out longitudinally, you know, actually it's more looking like generationally, uh, people develop cams. There is some correlation uh, whether or not the cam was developed in youth versus it being an actual more of a bone spur as a reaction to osteoarthritis. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, chicken and egg, that type of thing. Um, that it's just really hard to make those types of statements. And I, I just I just can't see that as, as being a thing. And again, for some athletes, I think it may actually be an advantage to have it. I think, you know, one, one thing it does provide is a lot of stability in their hips. Um, and we do see a much higher prevalence of it in athletes than we do in the general population. And so I, I wonder if it's something that they kind of use. So I, I, I'm, I mean, full disclosure, I've got a cam on my left hip, at least that's the one I had x-rays just to see what I had. Um, and I'm sure as hell I'm not going to do anything about it. The surgeon I work with, that's our main hip surgeon. He's got a cam on, on one of his hips and he's doesn't do anything about it. He thinks it's perfectly fine. Just leave it alone. I'm, so. I'm now, I'm now not going to sleep because I'm worried about both of you. So, oh I, yeah. I, I mean, we're a disaster. I wish you hadn't told me that. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty scared for you. Now there's lots of different treatments and, and, and surgeons, uh, surgery, there's, there's lots of different types of surgery. It's a very experimental area. Um, it's annoying. We can't call it new, really, at uh, this stage, but it's still something that's being played around with now. And it's also a place that, not just surgery, but the general regenerative medicine sort of crowd are, are very involved in this. And and so, before we get again into into the more conservative based interventions, can we talk about where you feel there is and isn't evidence for, let's say, types of surgery, injectables? Are you are you someone that's on on the on the stem cell wagon? You know, where, where's your head up with that stuff? Yeah, um, I, I don't, I don't think the injectables really probably do very much. I mean, what uh, most surgeons will use a a um, a simple pain injection, so they just guide a needle into the hip joint, hit it with some uh, 
some sort of anesthetic just to see if they numb the joint, do the symptoms go away? And that gives them pretty good sense of the, where the pain's coming from as far as the joint or not. Uh, they, they also, yeah. So diagnostic hip injection, but they also talk about how the patients will want surgery so bad that they'll tell you it felt better, whether it felt better or not, uh, which can really, you know, confound things as well. Um, but, uh, again, the, I think that the simple goal of surgery, if somebody were to go to is, is to decompress the area. So it, it doesn't cause uh, pain and dysfunction anymore. And so again, back to the point of people trying to do it prophylactically, you know, if, if it's for pain and dysfunction, why would you use it when there's no pain and dysfunction? And so this is where, um, that's really the only goal of that surgery. Now, they do reattach the labrum mainly because they can, and why wouldn't they? Um, it's it's not it's no more difficult than any other part of the surgery, so most surgeons will do that. But also, there was a run for a while where if the labrum was destroyed and they couldn't repair it, that they would reconstruct it, like with a piece of a hamstring tendon. Um, that's fallen out of favor because you just trim it away. It's I don't know how how quote necessary that labrum really is. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's really the long and the short of it is just keeping it simple of, you know, they're not tolerating that thing, poking on them anymore. You've done everything you can with activity modification and it's not making a difference. So, you know, go ahead and just decompress it and then do your rehab. See all over if they can, yeah. See if they can adapt uh, this time yeah. out. There's, there's the, I mean, I don't know again if it's popular across the pond, but certainly microfrac at that area, uh, where they're trying to stimulate, um, physiological recovery and things like that is, is still very popular in and around the, the, the area. What, what's your take on that? Yeah. Well, microfracture does not have, if you look at the meta-analyses and systematic reviews, doesn't have a really good, um, outcome in general, pretty much any joint. Um, most surgeons, they still use it at the hip specifically because they don't have any other option in there. It's such a deep joint. It's, you know, you can't do any sort of a transplant or anything like that really without doing a massive opening of the area. And so they just go ahead and microfracture it more out of a why not type perspective. Um, I have had surgeons that I've talked to that have said that um, you could probably just leave it as is just just to breed the uh, the um, the damaged cartilage. There, there's plenty of evidence that that cartilage is not going to heal. It's not going to heal back down. It's not going to do anything. That articular cartilage is damaged just to breed it off, do your chondroplasty, um, and then you can just leave that area as is. Uh, the problem is that is not that the area is there. It's that the area is getting poked by the cam. And so it's easier just to take the cam down than to try to get that area to, to quote, heal as far as grow new cartilage over it, whether it's fiber cartilage from the microfracture or any other type of of procedure the the idea is just stop poking at it yeah no fair enough now so we, we've, we've also ascertained that you're you're not into the injectables which mean that you're probably not on board the sort of um stem cell revolution partly because you're not you're not feeling that that would be that it wouldn't decompress the area it wouldn't actually add much to it because you don't think that the physiological changes are the be all and end all is that a fair assessment of your take on those things yeah so so stem cell is a very very interesting field that probably has some promise to it, but it's in such an infancy that you're basically just throwing randomness into a joint, which I think is just not a good idea at this point. Um, and again, as you're noting, it does, that area doesn't need to quote heal. It just needs to calm down. 
Um, and these things are not really going to do that. I mean, weirdly, I would actually think there's probably, I could make a better case for injecting a, a steroid into the joint as a one-time injection just to force it to calm down. Um, I would, wouldn't do more than one injection though, just once see if that, if that could knock it down and then it stays down on its own. Um, but no other thing really, uh, you know, would I argue for as far as injectables. That's, that's great. So we can get into the, into the, to the good stuff then. So let's talk in a little bit about rehab. Let's, let's say that we've got someone that is quite sensitive and irritable, um, and, and therefore not, not currently playing sport, you know, very tentatively and nervously, uh, trying to do some exercise, but not a lot. What's your sort of go-to strategy in the early stages when it's sort of really revved up? Well, it's really complicated. I, um, don't poke at it. <laughs> so whatever, whatever, whatever positions are causing the pain, we just avoid those for the time being. Um, I think where a lot of physios get it wrong is they decide, well, those positions cause pain. Therefore those positions are bad and should be avoided forever. It's not how that works. It's, it's irritable. Leave it alone for the time being. So we just try to, to avoid that, those positions as much as possible. Again, as I talked about before, most patients, their difficulty is in squatting. Um, that's what's causing their pain. So I try to get them squatting as early as possible in a pain-free way. Um, the, the most basic one I can throw at somebody is put a physio ball behind their back uh, on the wall and they do wall squats. But the point of doing the wall squat is so that they can get into whatever unnatural position they feel like they need to get into to make their hip feel good squatting. And that's typically kind of splayed out, you know, hips kind of externally rotated and abducted as they go into a squat. Usually that will feel really comfortable for them. So I just want them to get lots of exposure to squatting that's pain-free uh, and then progressively bring them into more natural type movements. Typically when we start adding load to the hip, uh, to, to a squat, uh, we're going to go with a, with a trap bar squat. Uh, so the trap bar, that device that's uh, uh, hexagonal shaped, that they step inside of, it's got handles on it and you can put weight on the sides. Anecdotally, pretty much every hip patient will get in there and be able to find a comfortable position pretty fast and away they go. And so like our higher level athletes on day one, if they can do trap bar squat, we're gonna put them with a trap bar and I'm just gonna start putting as much weight as I can on there to really try to, to tax them out and maintain their squatting strength. And so you, you, your uh, trap bar rationale is because you've got more degrees of freedom to play around. They can be a bit more creative than they can on a sort of barbell squat across their back. Exactly right. And I don't comment on their squat mechanics at all other than making suggestions as to, you know, maybe if you try it, you know, if they do the squat and they say that's, that still hurts. Uh, so we'll maybe try doing this, you know, typically splaying the leg out a little further. That's the commentary. Or if they go to lift the bar and they do it in such a way that makes me almost vomit because it's so weirdly, you know, rounded in some horrible way. And I'm like, okay, maybe flatten that out a little bit. Um, but otherwise, whatever is making them feel comfortable, I just want them to get reps of pain, uh, uh, limited, uh, minimal pain squatting. Okay. And then we're going, for, we're going from there then. So we're exploring and, and uh, doing these heretic like unsymmetrical squatting so once we've done that and we've we've thrown the the textbook out the window where where we're going in 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 terms of is there any any other really specific stuff that you'd want to phase in or does it become more specific purely based on function as we go through the gears yeah so what, what i'm trying to do is um i i typically 
you know, if, if when I evaluate them, they do a squat and it causes pain. Uh, the first question I have to ask is, you know, the way that they're squatting, is that a way they have to squat? So for example, um, a hockey goalie having to drop down into a position like that, a baseball catcher has to be squatted down in a very specific position. It could even be a snowboarder that when they land from a jump, they their foot, because of the orientation of the foot on the board, it drives their knee up into their hip like that, and it's a position they have to get into. Then I'm going to have to slowly progress them towards that task again. Uh, you know, and I, and I just try to recreate the basic positions because I think this is more of a positional issue than it is anything else. Um, but if it's strictly because the only time I ever need to go into that squat position is when my strength coach tells me to do that, I just call the strength coach and say, don't do that anymore. Uh, and it's a simple solution right there. Um, and so again, is it, is it specific to the task? And so what, what we just try to do is just, um, maintain their kind of comprehensive strength in general. I don't know what's normal for this athlete. I just want everything to be as strong as possible. So just a comprehensive program, making sure the quads are strong, hamstrings are strong, glutes, low back, uh, everything else, just comprehensively making sure everything stays strong and trying to avoid those painful positions for the time being. And then have them start kind of going back into their sport type activities. Now, we can try to recreate some of the loads of sport to see if they can tolerate those loads, but we can't actually recreate the sport in clinic. And that's because sport, like any other human task, has a lot of you know, psychological factors into it, like representativeness, the specifics of distraction, even like the smells of the field, you know, these types of things all create a very, spe- a very high specificity to the task that they really have to get back into that environment for their, their body to go back into its kind of normal pattern. And so we just try to do like a, a systematic return to activities where we just, you know, kind of widen the circle of what we allow them to do and allow them to explore, but we don't really drive it very much. We just kind of see what, how the organism organizes on its own. Yeah. Now we've already anticipated. Well, we've already spoken about in the in the in the chat so far about how sometimes it takes for a real careful reloading process and phased return, and that it sometimes takes a bit of wash, rinse, repeat, and uh, a trial and error as we're getting through that. Do you have any go-to sort of positions or tactics or strategies to phase someone back into those sorts of? Um, sort of tasks that are famously aggravating. So do you have a sort of a go-to phased um, thing that you can tweak the dials on gently? No, I mean, it really is just a matter of going from the position that we found that's comfortable and then slowly moving them towards the position that's known to be uncomfortable. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, we mentioned patellofemoral pain before, you know, we'll avoid valgus temporarily because that's known to put more contact pressure on the patellofemoral joint. But as it starts to feel better, if their tasks that they do require valgus, we'll have to start progressively loading them into the valgus. Um, but we just use pain tolerance as the guide. So, you know, keep it within tolerable uh, pain. And of course, you know, people like to ask, so give it a number on zero to 10. It's like, well, if you can stay strong through it, it's tolerable. If when you feel the pain, you feel your body kind of go weak a little bit, that's not tolerable. That's 
probably the most practical uh, view to that. Like a pseudo giving way of a sorts where it starts to feel. A bit exactly. That's the, the body's natural kind of protective mechanism. Great phenomena. Yeah, no, I like that. Now, there is just to, just to press you on that a little bit. If, mm -hmm. if we were to, because there's, there's variables in place, such as, let's say, depth of range, speed, amount, um, sets and reps. You know, there's lots of variables there that are still part of a phased return package. Do you have a favored preference there? So I'll, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table and say that for some reason, and it's not always a, a healthy one, I tend to, speed tends to be something that I bring in later. I mean, I, I'm trying to couple this with a, a generic phase return to the actual task. So typically I'm hoping that speed comes for the ride on that. But certainly with my programming, I'm going fairly heavy, fairly slow, going through the grades of, of resistance, adding more repetitions, and then bringing speed in. And, and again, I'm not saying it's a good habit, but I'm admitting that it's a habit of mine. Do you have any sort of favored preferences for that, or, or are you, uh, have you corrected for my bad habits already and you get speed involved as soon as you can and you're doing it all at the same time? Uh, for these patients, uh, I don't worry about it too much. The hip has a tendency to kind of organize itself pretty well. Uh, for the knee, on the other hand, I, I think speed specifically, you know, not to get too pedantic, but, you know, you have power, you have rate of force development, you have all these other variables, how, you know, what kind of effect on impulse, these types of things when you get into this. Um, but really, you know, speed is um, is a component of force, uh, you know, the the you know, Newton's second law forces mass times acceleration. So um, when you start to ask somebody to move quickly, you make them move at a higher velocity. And then when you ask them to change that velocity, that creates a deceleration, the faster you change that velocity, so the more of a quick type uh, movement it is or change, that creates a higher force because your acceleration part of that equation goes up. Mass isn't going to change, but the acceleration does. Or deceleration, you know, vectors don't care for positive negative. So that is a, you know, a force that may be much higher than what you worked at at a slow speed. Now you can also work at a slow speed at a much higher load. And so you're, you're tendinopathy experts will, will talk about this where they get to these really heavy loads at slow speeds and then bring that load way down and add speed which should be creating an impulse similar to the slow uh, loads that you're applying as well so it is kind of that you know incorporating all that in there now the nervous system has to be able to adapt to speed as well and again this is where you know at the hip um you know, everything is always at play, but I just don't see it as big as a factor as we see like in like post-operative knees, the, the ability of the quadricep, not just to generate force, but to generate it at the adequate rate is a huge issue that I think way too many physiotherapists are completely ignorant of. It's not a question of how much force they can generate. It's how much force can they generate in, in um, you know, three tenths of a second. Um, if they can't generate the force in three tenths of a second, you can't generate the force full stop. And that's the issue. And so, um, you know, again, not so much of the hip, but definitely we have to, but yeah, we, we, we have to be less fussy 
than that. Um, well, yeah. we can be less fussy than that in the, at the hip. So that, that's that's promising. And as I suspected, I need to uh, just be be you know get get out of that habit a little bit myself. So that's uh, that's really interesting. Now, wh- what uh, variables are you measuring and monitoring at the end stage of rehab when you when you're in that re- return to play? What are you asking them to keep an eye on, or are you just wanting them to move in a movement liberated way at that point, and you're just really only bothered about their symptomology again if if they if they're getting sore, or are you keeping an eye on any particulars it really is a soreness and so what i'll tell them to do is you know hey everything's been feeling really good in the weight room you don't feel it in your in your daily uh your activities of daily living you're not reporting any sort of uh, symptoms with that we've been pain-free for you know a week two weeks again depends on the level like really high level athletes you know man, you've been paying for you for a week. Let's start testing it. Uh, Cause we got to get you back. Um, we let them go, go mess around on the field a little bit. You know, if they're a footballer, go ahead and, you know, start kicking a ball around the field. Uh, just mess around by yourself, take a couple shots on goal and then report back. And they say, man, everything felt fine. Great. Or, you know, every time I went to my left and made this very specific move, I felt uh, pain there. And then I'll look and I go, Oh, well, cause that puts you into that position again. Um, so maybe avoid that for right now, but do all your other tasks for the time being. And we'll come back to that one later. Uh, again, just letting time be our friend and, and letting it kind of help us along with that. But, um, very much just, um, you know, again, with this type of thing in particular, I think it's very much position specific and, and just, um, coaching them along as to letting them understand what positions will tend to aggravate it versus which ones won't. Yeah. And so you're, you're, uh, probably whilst you're, you're caring about cumulative loads and bearing that in mind in your reasoning process, you're not immediately strapping a GPS to every one of these athletes to, to make sure that you're monitoring specifics of the metrics and the data that they're then collecting for, or, or even any specifics with wearables on, on force production and things. You're, you're, that, you're not wanting to tinker with those variables at that stage by the sound of things. No, no. And and the big issue is, you know, as you talked about the tails, the bell curve, you know, so what's normal for this person right in front of me, the best way for me to establish that, let them just kind of go out and and mess around with that. Now, if I have all the technology and I can gather that those data, you know, I could potentially be able to see, oh, I can tell, you know, he started reporting symptoms at this point here. So here's the level of that. But I could also just tell them when you start to feel symptoms back off, you know, that's a a lot simpler way to do that. So it's really a question of what resources do you have? What is expected out of you as a professional, uh, as opposed to what is actually required? You know, again, kind of that 80, 20 rule, what's the 20% of work that'll give you 80% of the results. Make sure you're taking care of those things. Yeah, no, keep it simple. Like it. That's great. Now you did briefly mention it. Well, we've kind of come through the entirety of the process is that, timing both of, of, of symptom onset but also then we need to think about what sort of time frames are we expecting these sorts of results in um, whilst I know that that is obviously as individualized as the rest of it could you give us any sort of clues as to what your typical spiel would be for people that are coming in in terms of helping them to understand what is required of them in terms of time frames because we also don't want to over egg it you don't want to tell people that you know get you strap yourself in for a three to six month process and they come back in a couple of weeks later with their eyes rolling saying what what on earth did you scare the hell out of me for I'm feeling loads better already you want to try and make sure that well, our prognosis isn't a million miles away so how how, how do you best mitigate those factors? 
again, it, it depends as with everything depends specifically on the, the circumstances of the patient. So, you know, um, a high level athlete that has a very short timeline, uh, to earn a living, uh, and needs to get back as fast as possible. We're, we're going to be guiding them a little differently than the person who says, um, you know, no matter how bad this gets, I'm not going to a surgeon ever. <laughs> if, even if I have to live in a wheelchair, I'd rather that than surgery. You know, you're going to treat them differently as well. But typically what I like to do, and this is pretty much with any diagnosis, I want to see you for two weeks and something should be changing in those two weeks. There should be an immediate effect of some sort. So I've taught you how to avoid the positions that typically aggravate this, and that's making a difference. Um, if it's not, then I usually want to get a, want to pull in a consult from outside to, to take a little closer look at this and, and try to see, as I mentioned before, you know, if it's ragingly bad, everything hurts, they have sharp pain all the time. They're just miserable. You know, sometimes, you know, a steroid injection just to force the thing to calm down, give them a break, uh, can be helpful, uh, if nothing else is working, but, um, you know, for the most part, I usually want to see some sort of change and feel like that patient already has control over their symptoms, meaning that they can make modifications to reduce it within two weeks. I want to see that happening. Now, as far as like the long-term prognosis, what I will usually tell people is even when everything is said and done, I mean, with most patients, they come in with some pain, you give them some stuff to work on, they start working on it, they start feeling better. Once they hit a certain point of feeling better, they kind of stop doing what they're, quote, supposed to be doing. And the pain never really goes away, but it's just kind of there and it doesn't really bother them anymore. Some people see that as like a moral failure of you didn't finish out the program. It's like, no, the patient just does whatever. The, it's, this is in service of the patient. So if it works for them, it works for them. And so, you know, um, I'll tell people, you know, even when this is all said and done and you don't have any pain during activities, you'll probably be able to make it hurt if you wanted to, you know, you get into that fader position and really ream on it. It's probably not going to feel that great. Um, does that mean you're not quote healed? No. It's, as I tell people right now, the amount of load it takes to cause irritation is here. And I'll put my hand at a position. We're just trying to push that up as high as possible. We're not trying to get rid of it because that doesn't matter. Just push it up as high as possible so that in order for you to feel pain, you got to put some insane amount of load into it to, to make it hurt. So that timeline, you know, as long as they're getting better, I don't really care how long that timeline goes and it can go as long as, you know, is acceptable to the patient. But for the most part, you know, our higher level athletes, I want to be getting them back to sport activities within six weeks of, of initial visit. And I think people underestimate just how many of these things top athletes and even uh, quality amateur athletes are, are carrying these these issues they're, they're functioning yeah. with them and how far they then take it and how much they aspire to be pain-free in that direction is up to them i mean what are people calling for mandatory training camps and rehab camps that in which there's uh they sort of they need to be making sure they take themselves into the end zone of, of 95 to 100%, even if they're not really that bothered and it's not interfering with their abilities. I think that's an, an important point for people, that people do sometimes miss. It isn't, it isn't a failure. You know, it's, it's completely someone no. athlete's prerogative to do that if they, if they wish. It is their body. I have a funny story for you on that line. I, I work with a, um, a college uh, sports program and um, we had a couple of baseball pitchers, baseball pitchers notorious for kind of chewing up their shoulders. 
And we had this, this kid that, you know, he just has a shoulder pain and every time he throws and, you know, a certain thing, he's just, his shoulder just, just hurts in a very specific way. And, and no matter what you throw at him, you know, you test him, he's got a lot of strength, everything looks good. And, and so he, he's in the training room, which is where the, the athletic trainers, uh, here in the U S it's kind of like the sports medicine room at the university where all the athletes, they come there if they want to throw an ice pack on their knee, or if they just want to, to get some, um, some medication because they have a head cold or something like that. And so this kid is in there because of his shoulder. And one of the other pitchers walks by and goes, Hey, what's, what's going on? And the kid goes, Oh, you know, I just get this pain in my shoulder when I, you know, after I throw lay out all the symptoms. And the other, the other pitcher goes, oh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> like, so what do you do about it? Oh, I just ignore it and just keep doing my thing, and it's fine. <laughs> and so it's like, yeah, how much, you know, this is that medicalization of things of, is this just something you just need to kind of, you know, I think as you guys in the U.K. say, just crack on, or is it something that you uh, – really need to do something about and it is i think on those on those points and obviously we can go across the body on this really is that how how people have decided to perceive that how that maps on to their sense of self and what they think is the consequence of them ignoring it or cracking on and so exactly. for those two people let's for the sake of argument even though it's ridiculous to suggest it let's imagine that if we could find a way to objectify their pain experience it was identical it's just that the way in which that mapped onto their sort of being was different if exactly that's right. if that is if if we're doing that isn't it isn't it amazing how it it must be something to do, you, you would think that it would be something or at least it's my bias to think that it's something to do with what each of them thinks the consequences of inaction or yeah. the reward that might be that's coming through the system of going through the the, the, the motion. Oh, and we can go into so many things like loss aversion and all these psychological constructs that people have that drive them towards certain behaviors that, you know, it becomes so deep and convoluted that, uh, you know, there's and a lot of play. Like, well, we've got a lot. We've got a. It's um, and I don't know if this plays out as well, but it's and and it, and I, I I think it's a fair thing to be talking about it on this podcast about this particular pathology because I've had a few that uh -huh. really ring this bell. But it's like these these athletes that are coming through, especially young lads coming through that are especially in the semi-professional academy. Sort of, they're, they're on the cusp of like yeah. they thought they were gonna be. A professional football player. I'm, I'm going to football again. Sorry, mate. But yeah, I think uh, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll stick with that now. But it's um, they and and they'd never declare it. And I also don't know if they could articulate it if they wanted to. It's not as if they'd been deceptive, but they kind of they'd rather suggest they're not making it because of injury rather than not. They're yep. on that cusp of it. Are they quite good enough, especially in a very very pressured environment? And so they capitulate. It, to them because of injury be that hip or otherwise and and realistically is it is it that or is it just the fact that they were in that situation where they didn't quite make it and, it, and that is a really awkward gray area it's not especially you know politically correct because you, you're sort of inferring that they don't um 
you know, it's almost like you're, you're, you're suggesting they're not being honest, but I'm, I'm not meaning that they're doing it consciously. I just think it's a messy grey area. There's a lot of pressure on these athletes. And, and oh, yeah. so really that they just feel like it's a, a better thing to have had to bow out because their, their body gave up because they worked it too hard, especially then if they've got physios and other professionals feeding in the fact that, oh, well, we've got this evidence to suggest that you probably overtrained and he'll go, oh, yeah, that'll be it. I overtrained, yep. I've worn myself out, and here I am. And I'm, I'm pushing reason- myself too hard. I, I, I work too much. <laughs> we have a saying in, in the sports medicine world of uh, not, nothing, uh, nothing fixes injuries like winning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they're so winning, good. they're like, oh, no, I'm good. And they, they'll push through injuries so much harder. But if they're lo- having a losing season, they're just like, why am I pushing through this? I hurt. And so I don't, I don't want to play. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's amazing, amazing amounts of data that we have over the, that sort of stuff. Don't we Where the, the, the body mapping stuff where people have just done tenderness readings, haven't they on the winning and losing teams and stuff like that. And then there's really good stuff that always crops up around world cup time where people have done the same sorts of tests on the fans <laughs> and they're like, they're oh, yeah. ma- you know, and, and obviously that maps onto public health stuff as well. Like the amount of heart attacks that happen on stressful games and all sorts of stuff like that. I think, I think we're wrapping, we're wrapping up the, the uh, FAI stuff and, and I, it brings me to, to just want to talk to you a little bit about some of the we're getting you over into the UK. I know you've visited a few times. You're, you've you've run some courses over here, but we're getting you over as one of the keynote speakers at the Reforming MSK Practice Conference in October. Um, and so, as long as I mean, you might not want me to say this publicly, but you kindly reached out to me after the when you saw that we'd launched the Big R's Reasoning Re- Responsibility Reform process. You reached out to me and and, and sort of uh, suggested that you were a supporter and fan of what we were doing with that. Can I just, if you if you now that I've just outed you as a fan of the movement, do you mind uh, <laughs> telling me as to as to why you felt that that, was, that that you think it's a, a good process, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you're going to do for the conference. Well, I like the fact that you're the the, the kind of the goals of it to kind of open up the conversation to 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 expose it. i'm a i'm a big fan of kind of freedom of speech that that good ideas if presented eloquently and fairly the and rationally the best ideas should you know there's a little bit of a meritocracy there the best ideas should kind of present themselves and you know when you have conversations it's like when you sit around and have a, a couple beers with some people uh, you have uh, the conversation. It's like, man, we got all the solutions here. Why, why can't these solutions be implemented? Because a lot of times it, it, it's not that complicated. It's some pretty simple things. Once you get people kind of to all get on that same page of, you know, where can we, you know, find, find, um, you know, alliances and, and common ground on some of these things and then move forward on making those changes. Cause you know, again, people will start, you know, nitpicking off in the corners and it's like, okay, well not that those aren't valid discussions to have, but let's look at some of these kind of big ideas and, and see if we can really try to move things forward. So I, I like the fact that you're, you're getting the people together and then also that you kind of, you know, come out of it with a little bit of an action plan of um, this is what, you know, we should be trying to do here. Um, and, and I just like, I like having those conversations, you know, as I talked about before, like when a treatment quote works, why, what are all the myriad ways that this could be working and how can we make ourselves better through having a deeper understanding, uh, instead of just shrugging our shoulders and saying, this is the way I've always done it. And I'm going to keep doing it that way. 
Um, so I, I like this attempt that you guys are having. Lovely. No, that's, that's great. And I'm glad that you've noticed that from our messaging because it's been part of the part of the backlash that we've received from causing a stir in that direction is that for you to have noticed that and, and I've not prepped you for that, is that. That's how you've read what we're doing, which is pretty accurate for me. That feels like a fair representation and not, not as if you have been excessively charitable. Yeah, and there, there's some things that are definitely up for discussion. There's personal preference, there's opinions, these types of things. But then there are also like, things that we can look at from a very objective perspective to say, no, we can pretty much, you know, the example I always give when I, I have a, a lecture I do just on the scientific process, you know, um, there's not a lot of debate there as to whether or not the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun. Uh, we can find conclusive evidence of certain things, but then there are, you know, life circumstances of, you know, if you grew up, you know, poor of a certain ethnic group in a certain part of a country, uh, your quote reality will be different than somebody else's reality, and there are cultural and and personal uh, experiences that can that can change things. And so, trying to find where we can can come to the common ground on those kind of objective truths that are kind of hard to argue. Uh, and then allow everything else to exist around that. Absolutely, no, and, and, and you've you've totally nailed what we're trying to do is mapping, the, you know, where making sure that all the voices are heard, people that that want to lean towards the the objective or objectifying most things versus the people that want to to talk about the specifics in a relativistic way about the subjective experiences and how they manifest. Let's get all the voices together to try and work out where they overlap and also trying to bake in room for those disagreements. You know, the distinctions aren't irrelevant. We're not trying to homogenize everything, but it's like, what can we agree on? And then how can we create a system, a blueprint of practice, of a gold standard of, of sort of way in which we're doing things to drive both the profession and the industry forward, which is why we're calling it reforming MSK practice. We're, we're, one of the things that the, the listeners will, will, will hopefully know of you, or certainly will do, when they then go and hunt down some of your resources after this, if this is their first encounter with you, is that whilst we've zoomed in on a particular pathology today, you very much are a polymath in in the MSK space. You talk about reasoning, you talk about the scientific method, you, as you've just said there, trying to discuss subjective and objective variables without being dogmatic or ideological in either of those directions. For that reason, we wanted you to come over as a, as a keynote speaker, and we're giving you as broad a scope as we can on the topic of exercise, in which you're going to do a keynote for 20 minutes. We're then going to come on, me or one of the team will come on and grill you for, for 10 minutes, sit you amongst the panel of other people who are uh, known to be vocal in the direction of, of exercise for various things, and then a big Q&A to, to bring that session to a close. Just give us a, a few clues as to what sort of stuff people might expect in that session uh, from you. Well, I mean, the big thing, and this is pretty much any time I, I have discussions like this, is the first thing we have to define is, you know, what do we mean by exercise, and then what do we mean by the application of that? So, you know, are we talking more of a... Uh, a public health kind of perspective? Are we talking about specific rehab uh, perspectives, sports performance, you know, all these myriad things. Uh, one of the big things I think people forget about exercise is the mental health component that, that can be at play, uh, both good and bad. You know, if somebody's having a miserable time with their exercises, you could actually be uh, having a negative effect on someone's mental health. But again, always kind of exploring what are all these different ways, because a lot of times when I see disagreements happen is that one person's thinking of it in one context and another person's thinking of it in another context and they're arguing points that have nothing to do with each other and think that they disagree. And so, you know, we'll, we'll kind of explore that a little bit and, and just try to set the stage of some of these conversations of, um, 
you know, whether or not we're doing enough when we're, when we're, when we have decided we want to intervene with something like exercise, whether or not we're doing the, the appropriate, actually doing the thing we think we're doing, or if we're doing something uh, else entirely. Mm, and we, we, we both sort of quite liked the, the title, perhaps, whether we draw it into the title, but it's certainly that the, the direction of travel will be reforming our relationship with exercise and so what we're getting at with it and why, if it should be at the core of what we're doing or a, a core component, then why and what and, and, and trying to make sure that we uh, take a proper deep dive into that. So I'm really excited for that session and, and looking forward to your, your, your thoughts on it. Just before we go, is there any way you would like to point people to your various different resources and platforms? You can't you can't plug your podcast on her. We need all the listeners we can get, but every Everywhere, everywhere else, of course, you can talk about. Yeah, also the podcast isn't that great anyway. <laughs> well, you can, you uh, can say that. <laughs> um, yeah, if you just, uh, my website, uh, thesciencept.com, uh, pretty much has any, any way you can find me. Uh, the other websites I'm involved with probably all, all kind of filtered through that. Any of the courses that I teach uh, are available on that uh, that website at all uh, as well. And then I... I Occasionally, we'll we'll write some blog posts. There's definitely a big history of blog posts there. Some people sometimes they'll email like, "Hey, why don't you write about this?" Like, because I wrote about that like five years ago. Just go read the post. Um, so there is kind of an archive there that people can definitely dig through. Um, uh, yeah, and there's links to, to to not to plug the podcast, but there's links to uh, the the main one that I do is PT Inquest, which is a, a kind of a journal club where we just talk about an article and what it says, what it doesn't say, how to apply it, how not to apply it, um, uh, giving suggestions um, and helping people become better, better critical thinkers. Yeah. I mean, we see, it still breaks my heart a little bit, but um, Jack March, who is our rheumatology lead at Choose Health and very involved in the, in the podcast, pretty much heads up the podcast now for us. It, you know, he's, he still names PT Inquest as his favorite physio podcast, which is but absolutely <laughs> breaks me that. breaks me every time but yeah it's certainly a really nice deep dive into uh into a particular uh paper or, or cluster of papers sometimes um that, that goes into the bare bones of it and he is the science pt and he, he makes sure he does it in a scientific and methodical way certainly get more more uh from him there than, than you do from me with my waffly questions so thank you so much for your time today mate and really appreciate it really looking forward to to seeing you in october and make sure that the rest of you get your get your tickets to that it's going to be a, a great event and great party so look forward to having a drink with you then mate thanks uh, i'm looking forward to it and thanks for having me on the show no bother so there you have it I hope, like me, you found that really useful. It's an area of the body where I feel uh, on occasion my clinical reasoning and anatomy knowledge has let me down slightly in the past. Those younger hips that come in, a bit more difficult to assess, a bit more difficult to manage. Really useful getting all that information on um, how the biomechanics and the uh, psychosocial aspects of, of the patient's can, uh, presentations can really affect how they get symptomatic from what is really quite a common morphological difference in, in the hips. So uh, again, I hope like me, you found that as useful as I did. Great thanks to Eric for taking the time out to support a podcast that is not his own. Um, as usual, got to give kudos to Jack for the really excellent questioning. Um, I mean, you know, as part of, a, part of a team, obviously he's supported by the rest of us. We come up with the questions, he's just the mouthpiece, but he, he delivers that mouthpiece really quite nicely, so uh, claps to him. Uh, 
social media wise follow eric mira on twitter he is eric he's at eric mira eric spelt with a k mira m-e-i-r-a you can find jack chu at jack a chu uh the podcast team tweets from at tpm podcast if you're f- interested in following me for rheumatology based stuff then i'm at physio jack um please remember that we all of these podcasts are, are completely free. Uh, if you can chuck us a few pounds on Patreon, then just go to patreon.com, search for the Physio Matters podcast. You can sign up for as little a pound a month. Um, that really helps us keep us going. All these server issues that we have on our website keep going down, all this sort of stuff. We, keep, we need the money to keep, keep this thing ticking over. Without those donations, really, this show would not be anywhere near like it is now. Um, and I can't stress that enough. We've had conversations in the past about whether we can even continue the show or whether we need to drop it to, from a monthly show. Or, you know, All these different things ha- have been put on the table and we've managed to keep up these monthly recordings and putting these po- podcasts out for you uh, consistently for now 55 episodes plus or minus some bonuses. So uh, absolutely can't thank those patrons and patrons enough uh, they really keep us ticking over and keep this show on the air remember to sign up for the conference uh, keep your eye out for more competitions on our social media feeds we've given away uh, four course places this year including one place entirely to free for free to our conference uh, we've got at least three more that i know of coming up this year so keep your eye out for those and enter uh, and you could really win yourself some more, even more free cpd out of us Once again, I've been Jack March. I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time um, for episode 56 of the Physio Matters podcast as we get into our late middle ages before we become become geriatric. Um, I've just finished watching the football and all I've got left to say is it's coming home. Sorry to you non-football fans out there, but we're all football fans here and it is coming home. See you next time. You've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing physio matters because physio matters.